It's a Celtic belief, and I'm prone to believe it. It is said that a bird in the house is an omen, a sign that death is nearby. For the better part of the last year, a muffled but unmistakable thunk signaled the return of a disoriented robin flying headfirst into a window at my father's house. It was in the large first floor room where he sometimes slept if the stairs were too much and he was in pain. And he was often in pain. At some point, Dad went out and strung up some netting or something, making so the bird could not get too close to the window, and the robin stopped or moved on to some other window and some other home. I chose to interpret that visit and attempted break-in for the sign that it was. We would be getting a visit from death. You see, it wasn't the first time for me with these birds. I came face to face with a winged harbinger of the end years before. I was staying with my grandfather in Florida, that sinking swamp that seems to exist as a gateway to the netherworld anyway, when we were awakened one morning by a loud bang. It was coming from the bedroom bathroom. Cautiously, we went in and bang, it happened again. We looked up at the heavily textured plastic panel that covered the fluorescent lighting and could make out the distinct footprints and shadowy legs of a small black grackle. It would hop a bit, then fly up and land again with a bang. Standing on a little step stool, my grandfather carefully removed the panel and the bird crashed down to the floor, zipped into the shower stall and then out into the rest of the apartment. It darted at us as we covered our heads still in our pajamas. We attempted to shoo it toward the sliding glass doors and the screened-in patio out back. Eventually, we opened the front door and out it flew and we thought that was the end of it. But less than 20 minutes later, as my grandfather was using his beloved microwave to heat up some coffee, in came the bird again, swooshing around the mid-century lampshade that hung over the dining room table. This time, the bird ended up in the guest bedroom. It got confused in the heavy curtains with their patterns of fruit and tropical plant life. And us, using a thick black garbage bag... We caught the grackle and released it once more. This time, we went a little further out into the condo parking lot. How could I not read into this? One bird, one house, two visits. Once in the bedroom, once the guest room. It is surely no coincidence that within a few short years, my mother would die in the worst kind of guest room, the hospital, and my grandfather would die in a bedroom, his heart giving out with a bang. So when I heard that thud of the robin against the window at my father's house in the room where he slept, a tiny sadness started to grow in my stomach. In November of last year, my father got up to use the bathroom and died of heart failure. His heart stopped making that thunk-thunk sound. They found him on the floor in the morning. This episode, we're going to cover some territory that may be upsetting, but certainly not things that are uncommon. We talk frankly about ideas of suicide, death, and the very real feelings that come with losing someone. We'll also continue to focus on how a creative mind can work itself through the enormity of grief, how we find ways to connect with other people and begin to regain a sense of purpose again, or at least, which is sometimes the most, have enough drive to just keep getting up day after day. It's time to get straight to it as we open up a portal and deal with the things we need to when we visit the Deep Night. Hello, it's me, Dale Seaver, and it's a special honor to be with you as your host, guide, and guru through this next hour of regrets and revelations we call the Deep Night. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus, and even the Gowanus knows a thing or two about loss. By no less than the South Brooklyn Casket Company, a stalwart of the neighborhood since it was founded in 1931, has been torn down among so many other structures on those canal-adjacent blocks to make way for another stack of luxury apartments for those wealthy enough to live on a Superfund site. 
And just as the Guani no doubt mourns its former self as a small but oyster-rich inlet surrounded by wildflowers, I too find myself a little misty for the way things used to be down there, rotten and wild and toxic. Now it's just rotten, wild, and toxic with a Whole Foods and a wine store. Oh, but things can't stay the same, can they? We all live and die, and no one escapes this life without suffering some kind of loss. Now, my intention is not for this to be a grief-centric podcast. If you're looking for those, there are many fine ones out there. And in fact, we talk about one such effort this episode. But here, uh, every day, I'm trying to stay in the moment and respond to the cresting and crashing ocean of sadness that exists within me at all times. <laughs> Other things inside me include prescription-strength heartburn medication and half a can of flat soda that I was too cheap to throw away, and so I drank it even though I knew it would be not so great. So here's what happened as plainly as I can put it so you understand the context for this and many of the other conversations we've been having this season. I talked to my father on the phone a few days before he died. His speech seemed a little more slurred than normal, but he was tired, and we had learned that he likely suffered a stroke sometime over the last year. It was not unusual uh, of late for this to be the case with the slurring of words, plus he was tired and in the basement working on something, and he seemed eager to get back to it. So I almost got off the phone right away so he could continue, not wanting to interrupt the flow. But uh, we talked. Uh, he wanted to stay on, so we talked a bit more, and it was like any other call. Uh, two days later, I got a call from his wife, and I missed it because I was brining one of my famous buttermilk turkeys. This was for a kind of pre-Thanksgiving meal to enjoy while Galinda's family was in town. But my father's wife only calls me when something is wrong, so I was not eager to check that voicemail when I saw it, and being tuned into the dire messages of the hapless robin smacking against the window, I could have predicted what that voicemail would include. Before I listened to it, the iPhone does a thing where it transcribes the voicemail. So, in fact, I never listened to it. I read it. And even as prepared as I thought I was, reading the words, your dad died this morning, well, is shocking. It's still shocking, honestly. Later, details would suggest he died of a heart attack, but it's not clear exactly what happened. The coroner looked at my father's medical history and declining to do an autopsy, went with his gut and marked Dad down for a nonspecific cardiac event, which feels like a coroner not doing the one job he's supposed to do, but fine. Now, I do wish that he had died in a solarium or a tennis court or some other part of the house where I would likely never go, but he died in the bathroom, and that's a room that is hard to avoid, and at my age, it's one I visit with increasing frequency at all hours. Hard not to imagine things in there, but uh, it has gotten slightly easier uh, to not picture things, you know, while you're using the facilities. I'm in the curious position of having never seen my parents dead. I found out about both uh, of their passings via phone call, and in each case, by the time I got there, the bodies were already gone. Now, I'm not eager to have that experience, uh, seeing a loved one dead, but the effect of not having that happen is that I will never uh, really feel closure uh, with them. My parents were here, and now they are not. No punctuation on the end of that sentence. No final moment to hold a hand or anything, just poof. And I'm supposed to just go on. My guest today had a different story, which I'll let her tell in her own voice. I found Tawny Plattis while searching for people who are working at the intersection of grief and comedy. Tawny has managed to keep stepping forward creatively following the death of her husband, George. In addition to being an in-demand voiceover artist, she performs stand-up, hosts a podcast called Death is Hilarious, and started a nonprofit group of the same name to help modern mourners navigate the hardships of losing someone, especially young widows. I am so appreciative of her time and candidness. Let's go now to my conversation with Tawny Plattis. Tawny Plattis, welcome to the deep night. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And how are you in this moment, Tawny? I'm doing okay today. I have definitely had worse days. Yes, good, good. Well, um, let's get right into it because uh, here's the situation that we find ourselves in. All season long, I've been drawn to people who have dealt with or are dealing with 
loss and who have found a creative way through it. And we all know we're going to be transformed by endings and things like that. But I'm most curious about people, uh, who, uh, what they're doing on the other side of it and how they're going through it. So you've developed several creative ways to deal with the death of your husband, George. Um, so maybe just explain uh, where you are with all of that and how soon after that did you realize that making something was possible? Pretty immediately, I started doing stand-up over my husband's corpse, as I like to say. Oh, <laughs> it can be kind of a tough room. <laughs> Fortunately, the EMTs all really understood what was going on. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I've performed for less. <laughs> so, yeah, that's good. Well, that's good because that could have gone a couple of ways. Uh, so, uh, so you you found your husband and... and uh, uh, by the way, is there a, a kind of a time span at which sorry for your loss is no longer uh, <laughs> meaningful? Do you still like hearing it? Uh, it's uh, I don't I never know. And then if you say it and then do I say it back? Are we just in a loop forever? <laughs> I don't know that there's really a hard rule on that. What I've come to find in my time working in the grief space is that everybody is very different. I think it's shorthand for saying, I'm sorry that you have to experience that. I'm sorry that you have to go through it. Some people hear, I'm sorry for your loss, and they immediately think, why are you apologizing? Did you kill them? Right. For me, it doesn't bother me at all. I think it's somebody trying to be nice and kind and considerate, and we don't have any preparation for how to support people with grief. That's one of the reasons why I do what I do. We don't learn how to support people in grief. We don't know what to say. It's this very taboo thing you're not supposed to talk about because it makes people uncomfortable to talk about death. We still have this idea, this superstition that if we talk about it, we'll make it happen. I think people huh. still feel like grief is contagious. Death is contagious. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm worried. <laughs> Earlier I was worried about the spiders that are going to start dropping out of the sky on the East Coast. But now I'm worried about the contagious death. Thing. Uh, uh, but anyhow, uh, uh, let's uh, though go a little – sorry, I jumped in, so I interrupted you. But so you're okay. – now somehow you found some impulse that said I, this is a time for jokes. <laughs> uh, I did. There. And, and that was a, a kind of – maybe some people have a fight or flight or comedy response. I did. I found my husband. I tried to resuscitate him on the phone with 911 until the paramedics got there. They tried to resuscitate him and they told me, I'm so sorry, he's gone. And my husband was the only person that I had in my life. I felt like he was the only person who loved me. And I did not see a point in living anymore. My idea after I found him was, I'm going to take my life. And as I'm planning on doing that after the EMTs leave, they bring in a body bag, which is really going to throw a wrench in my plan here. So I start to say, wait, stop. No, I, I need you to leave the body here because I, you know, I need it to go through with this. But I realized as I was saying that they're going to 5150 me. They will hold me involuntarily in psych if I tell them I don't want to be alive anymore and I have a plan. Uh huh. And so I stopped myself halfway through that and I was like, wait, no, stop. I need you to leave the body with me. Oh, but I guess you can't. Otherwise, we're liable to end up with like a Norman Bates type situation here from Psycho. And that's no good. And they started laughing because they're EMTs. They're sickos. They see really horrible, <laughs> traumatic things all day and they make jokes about it to deal with it. So I heard them laugh and I was like, oh, I'm an entertainer. I love that. That feels good. I'm going to keep going. So then the next thing I said was, well, I guess I could just sling him over my shoulder and we could weekend at Bernie's it and see how long it takes for people to notice he's gone. Because that's not weird. That's just cute and quirky. Everybody loves that movie. And they kept laughing. And I thought in that moment, okay, maybe nobody loves me anymore, but I can still make people laugh. And that feels pretty close to love. If you're a comedian, if you're in comedy, if you're a yeah. performer, like that feels pretty good. So Seems I like, like to say the motivation for a lot of uh, comedians too, I would say. Oh, definitely. There's, there's yeah. a lot of consistency with our stories, yes. even if you didn't find a body. Right. Right. 
<laughs> yeah. Although you could have been in danger of becoming a prop comic uh, if it relied on always having the body there. <laughs> I guess that was a liability, wasn't it? <laughs> well, you just have to be careful about what the next step is. That's all. Uh, <laughs> uh, so sorry, you were going to say something after that. Oh, I, I like to say that the paramedics saved my life that day. They didn't save my husband's, but you can't win them all. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, well, uh, and uh, forgive me if I'm being irreverent around any of this. Uh, I, I certainly uh, I am approaching it, I think, with the same spirit as which you have now arrived. So lest anybody listening think I'm not taking uh, this uh, seriously. I am. <laughs> I really need you to take my husband's death seriously while I make jokes about it. Well, you never know. I don't know what kind of emails I'm going to get. Uh, so, uh, and and what? So you you you're getting. Uh, there's nothing like that first laugh, <laughs> and that that sense of um, finding. Uh, something to fill the heart, uh, which is laughter. Um, but then you made it into uh, really a, a whole thing. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and that's been going on. How long ago was that, and how long have you been engaged in a kind of creative process around it? My my husband passed away November eighth, two thousand nineteen, and we had a comedy podcast together. I, I'm a voice actor. I'm an entertainer. He did a lot of like my engineering, and he did the co the comedy podcast with me. So, you know, I'm I'm a working actor. I'm not a you know Scarlett Johansson type actor. I can't just take time off and you know sell a few houses and you know take all the time I need to grieve. I had to go back to work. Sure. So um, I had contracts that needed to be fulfilled with my podcast, but I didn't want to keep producing the podcast that my husband and I had made together. Yep. I, it, that did Tough. not feel good. Yeah, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. So um, I started just talking about what I was going through. I started talking to other comedians, other people who were making jokes and content about their grief. And that's really where everything started. I was trying to find other people that were like me. And then that kind of evolved into now helping other people who are also using humor and maybe feel a little ostracized because of that. Right. And it's been you've been successful in finding other people, right? I have. We I I've started a nonprofit foundation. And what I do is I connect others who are going through similar grief experiences together. I run support groups and everything has a very dark humor tone to it. So we have these grief support groups and everybody's making jokes <laughs> throughout the group and then simultaneously crying. So it's one of those really beautiful mergers between these two big emotions, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I applaud that effort. I oh, think it's you. very, very uh, meaningful uh, work to be doing. Um, <laughs> my current predicament uh, is that I suffered the loss of my father uh, suddenly late last year, uh, right around Thanksgiving, which is uh, either great because everybody was around uh, for the funeral or kind of annoying because now Thanksgiving is extra sad. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> than it already was. Um, and the being out, uh, being without him uh, is difficult and still, honestly, a little, I'm a little close to it, right? Sure. Um, but the question I keep asking myself is, what do I do now? And uh, how am I changed in this moment? And what does that mean going forward? Uh, you were suddenly widowed. I'm suddenly an orphan. And uh, I guess what I'm saying is it's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> because how you defined yourself up until this point uh, was not that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and now suddenly here we are in this kind of uh, uh, just changed reality. And of course, we, well, in your case, I don't know if you knew it was coming. I guess eventually it would be. But uh, the timing of the thing and this completely unusual moment, I just keep asking myself, what am I supposed to, who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? Uh, what does this look like? And it's, uh, it's confusing. Mm -hmm. It is. There's a very sudden and... What would you say? What's the word? I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but it's a change that was not something that you decided. It was out of your control. That identity shift was not your call. It's just thrust upon you. 
And I think that's really what makes it very different. You know, like I mentioned EMTs having a really dark, sick sense of humor. And you'll find that in a lot of professions where you come up against death, you know, very frequently or where you're seeing, you know, like traumatizing things. Right. And I think it's a little bit different because typically you go into those professions, at least with some kind of idea of that. Like I'm going to see some really horrible things. And when you're like civilians, <laughs> for lack of a better word, and it just happens, you know, there's no support system. There's no like group of buddies that you can go to, you know, ideally, like I would imagine there are a lot of EMTs or, um, you know, combat vets, what have you, that they can go to their buddy or their coworker and be like, man, what was it like when you first had to see a body or you first failed to resuscitate someone you know, and they can kind of talk to somebody about that. I don't have I didn't have a bunch of young 20 something year old widows I knew that I could call up and be like, hey, when you found your husband's body and you couldn't resuscitate him, what did you do? Like, I didn't know anybody that right. wasn't that's not built in. You know, when you have um, this sudden grief and this sudden loss like that, there was no support just on hand for that. Right, doesn't come up a lot in the VO booth. No, it doesn't. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know it. I didn't know anybody else who had lost their spouse in their twenties. That was one of the reason that I, one of the reasons that I did start creating content was I was looking for other people. The young widows groups are women in their forties and fifties. Right. A lot of those women are the same age as my parents. They right. couldn't really, we didn't have a lot in common necessarily. Right. First of all, ouch. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which they are young. And then I did find my group and it was called extremely young. And I was oh, like, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yes, that generation loves everything extreme. Uh, <laughs> hey, Gen X, man. Yeah. I'm a millennial. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Well, good for you. <laughs> and it does feel like a very millennial approach uh, to also be kind of very uh, public and out there about what's going on. I don't know. Maybe I'm on thin ice when it comes to generational divides. I actually don't know. But it wasn't my first instinct to be very public about things for whatever reason. I just couldn't find anybody. There wasn't yeah. anybody there. That that was That was how I found the hundreds of people that are in the support groups now. That's that's where I found my community. A lot of those groups are very private. They're very quiet too. They're they're difficult to find. Yeah. And there's 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 not a ton of resources, at least when I was widowed, there wasn't a ton out there. I, I felt like I I had to go out and essentially be like, hey, you know, there's no young widows group of San Diego. There was there's just nothing. <laughs> <laughs> It's always sunny in San Diego. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, it sounds like maybe you also didn't have the family resources to also hold on. Yeah. But even if you do have that kind of thing, um, it can still feel very uh, lonely because we, at the end of the day, are still individuals going through this. And the relationship that you have with the person that is no longer here is very much your own. Um, so... It, always helpful to have other people who have gone through something similar, but it's still a very solitary uh, kind of thing. Um, other than the work that you're doing with bringing other people together, there's certainly a lot of time where you are on your own. Is there, uh, what, is there a common method that you have found to, to, to sort of let it go and to, 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 to mourn? I mean, my first instinct rather than be public, as I said, was turn off the lights uh, put on the headphones and, and listen to some music. Um, and and uh, everyone's different, of course, but uh, was there a song that you could just uh, allow yourself to listen to and let go? Or, or did you have some other form of outlet like that? For me, the comedy is the outlet. Yeah. Finding, finding other people who get it because I very much did not want to be unique or special in this situation. I wanted to find other people who had been through what I had been through and had survived. I wanted to see other people that 
were covered in tattoos and had lost their spouse and were, you know, a little trashy, for lack of a better word, <laughs> and had survived. We, You know, there's this idea of widows and they all look like, you know, Mrs. Havisham. And right. that's just that's not the case. So for me to be able to, like, really let go, there was almost this um, this need for exposure therapy, I guess. Like, I was very in it. I want. I was very in it. I very much wanted to go the radical acceptance route. Like, this is happening. It is what it is. And I hate it. So what am I going to do about it? And a lot of that was, was comedy. Like, Pete Davidson, his stand-up on losing his dad – a yeah. lot of the stuff that he has created was so helpful to me and I related. So, I mean, I'm from San Diego. He's from Staten Island. The parallels there. It's the same. You know. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we call it. The San Diego of New York. That is what I call it. Like people try, they're like, well, you know, San Diego, it's like L.A. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is the Staten Island of California. <laughs> it's trashy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, Pete Davidson for whatever other things uh, get attached with to him and with him. Uh, certainly, that that work is important, and I think was uh, it, it, it's the dimensionality to him that, <laughs> that one can see him as a human and to be uh, very vulnerable around that so publicly. Mm -hmm. um, really, I think that's that's where you can open your heart a little bit. I like him a lot. <laughs> I relate yeah. to Pete Davidson a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't have any particular feeling one way or the other. I just know that others, you know, he's kind of yeah. caught up into something there that feels maybe bigger than him. But uh, <laughs> I, I feel like that there is a real human person there. Um, sure. And he let us in, which is so key, certainly in comedy, too, is to let that truth through. So you can be speaking from a real place. And, and that's what people want. <laughs> Sometimes. Audience, you know? Sometimes. Yeah. I, I, think, I think there's um, – we're in an interesting place in comedy right now because I think some people want to use it as escapism because of the reality of the world right now. It's yeah. very scary. We're living in a very scary world right now. We're very aware of that. And I think some people want to use comedy to forget about that. And then you have yeah. people like me where I want to use – comedy to tackle the scary it makes it more what do you, what do you say uh palpable palatable yeah. palpable it, it that, that's what i like about <laughs> <laughs> that's what i like about dark humor it's you know you're, you're laughing in the face of danger you're laughing in the face of fear that gives you control over the situation again yeah yeah and, and certainly at a time when you felt out of control Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, I, I, I still, and this is fine. We're different. <laughs> my, my, my thing was, uh, uh, it remains, uh, other than this, where we have some uh, public conversations about it and I'm being pretty more forthright maybe than I've ever been, uh, because this is also, we're coming up on the anniversary of my mother's death, which is 20 some years, 25 some years. Uh, so um, I'm trying to speak more directly to the feelings that are going on, which has felt good. <laughs> I don't know if it's from a control impulse or not, but uh, it really to just call it what it is and to deal with something is, uh, it, it feels important in the moment for me, um, though I have not been as public on social media outlets. You know, I put up a Facebook to make sure people knew a funeral was happening, but then I quickly deactivated again and retreated <laughs> to my crystal cave here in <laughs> Brooklyn. Um, so, uh, but uh, I'm pleased that being public has helped you, and those are certainly different, just two different modes of going about it. Um, uh, has there been a point through this work now uh, that you've been doing it for a little while that you feel like you're no longer doing something for George's memory and instead are doing it for your future? For my future? And how do you mean? Well, sometimes we get caught in a loop of I'm doing this as a means of honoring so, or this is what they would have wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing it for them. And I'm just, it sounds like maybe you were always doing it for you, but did you maybe notice that or mark that as a shift where you suddenly say, okay, you know what, this is actually the thing that I'm doing for me to get through this. And it has less to do with 
him or his memory or mm-hmm. his legacy. I think those things are always intertwined together. I, I don't know that there's like one or the other. I, I don't yeah. think they have to be mutually exclusive because especially my husband and I had this kind of relationship where we felt like we were this is so cheesy, but it, like one soul split into two bodies kind of a thing. Like we had the same atoms that had been in one entity at some point in time. Like we didn't think that was real, but it's like certainly what it felt like when we met each other. It was an instant connection. I felt very understood, unlike I have ever felt understood in my life. And he said he felt the same way. And then when he died, I held him on the floor for a very long time. And I remember thinking like wanting to absorb any little electricity or any any essence, for lack of a better word, have that like absorbed. And I noticed there was such a change in me, too, after he he died, where I, I felt and this sounds nuts and I'm aware of it, but I felt more like him. Like I felt like he was a part of me. And people talk about that a lot. Like, oh, you carry them in your heart. They're always a part of you. I felt like I took on so many more of his traits than we even shared before. I I felt like I became more masculine after he passed mm-hmm. away. Like my like a lot of my feminine qualities were very muted in comparison. And it has always felt like that and it continues to feel like that. Like there is just this this duality of me, this, you know, I, I am George and I am Tawny. <laughs> Those are like two things that are happening at once where I, I am doing this for me, but I am also George. And I know that sounds nuts, but it, and I don't mean it literally either. It, it, it's what it it's the best way I can describe the feeling, though. Yeah, I think that's a uh, not nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And Thank uh, you. Uh, I think maybe my other question comes from my own experience where I'm dealing with a parental figure and, and not somebody that I was in a relationship like that with, where throughout any relationship, there's always the exchange of holding with one another's energy, right? Whether that's masculine and uh, feminine or something else. But uh, it's a constant in a strong, good relationship, maybe even bad ones. (laughs) It's a a back and forth. So it makes sense to me that you would pull pull those things that you had given before or that he had given and and, uh, incorporate that into one being. So um, uh, that all all squares to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad it makes sense. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, and through the uh, uh, conversations that you've had on the podcast, have there been uh, things that's um, been very helpful to you in terms of reframing uh, your position or clarifying the things that uh, you're going through? Have there been moments where you've said, ah, yes, okay. <laughs> Just you saying that puts it into perspective. As far as something that my guest has communicated? Yes, yeah. One of the things that really stuck out in my mind was J.C. Coakley was on my show. And I had said something about, like, comedians not being well. And she said, I don't agree with that at all. I think that we are very well. I think that we are talking about things. We are working through these things. And we are, like, the modern-day philosophers. We are doing this exploration of the human condition. She goes, I think we are so well. And I remember that really stuck with me. Like, this isn't something bad that I'm doing. This isn't something wrong because a lot of people don't like it when you talk about this stuff. They don't like it when you're public about any of this stuff. But then when you experience grief or experience these things like this, because we haven't talked about it, you're completely unprepared and you have these feelings of what should I do? Am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? And that was something that really stuck with me just because I felt like it gave me that reassurance that I was not being 
inappropriate, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's also been a, a shift as time moves forward because some of the people that were old <laughs> and dying uh, when, when, when I was uh, younger and being exposed to that, they, they were themselves very old. <laughs> they came from a totally different uh, perspective on, the, on certainly around death yeah. and uh, on, um, uh, and how the best way to grieve and all of that, which uh, I think was not about talking and <laughs> in my experience. And, and it was, uh, some of that's cultural, but um, it, it's not a great example necessarily. So to have this new moment where we can't speak into some of these things and to some of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, it is enormously helpful, and whether that's comedians or not, it's <laughs> even just humans talking is good. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm curious because you, you know, talk about that exchange of energy and how things have changed and maybe registered for you um, as a voice actor, uh, of which I've dabbled a little myself, so I'm <laughs> no stranger to it. But um, do, did you notice uh, uh, when you're there uh, in the barrel with your cans on, uh, did you? <laughs> sorry for the industry speak, but um, did you did you notice it changed? The grief has changed your voice or vocal yes. quality in any way. It did absolutely. Um, my voice has always been much higher. This is low for me. <laughs> this is this is my low voice. Uh -huh. um, and this after... is my low voice too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and after my my husband died it it changed and I wasn't sure for a really long time if that had anything to do with what I experienced I I'm not a doctor and I actually I'd spoken about it recently and that had inspired me to do some research to look it up and there are events that can happen that can cause your voice to change like emotional things, you know, trauma, for instance. Yeah. And my, my voice did, it changed a lot. I, I had to get new voiceover demos because my, my voice was, I couldn't do my job either because I was before that doing a lot of things that were very bright and bubbly. And that's how my voice was described, was very bright and bubbly. I never thought I would have a a deeper voice, like the for me, again, for me, this is a deeper voice. I know I don't sound like Scarlett Johansson, but <laughs> <laughs> for, for me, this is deeper. And uh, after my husband died doing that voiceover work, I, I could not bring it back up and things have changed since then. Like, if I really want to, I can get back up there, you know, now, now I have more control over that. So I, I can do that now. But <laughs> my speaking voice, unless I'm in the frame of mind, typically my speaking voice is much lower now. Yeah. yeah. Was it closer to that to that voice? Before? It was. And yeah. the other thing is, is because people do not take you seriously if you're a woman with a higher pitched voice. I have pitched it lower historically yeah. because, you know, people will think I'm a child on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if, if I'm with my like I'm I have a partner, uh, if I'm with my partner, you know, he's he makes me feel all cutesy and everything my my, vo my voice is a lot higher with him like he gets he gets to hear the real one more but that's like that's closer to where it is wow well, <laughs> keeps everything interesting i suppose um and that, <laughs> that's uh, uh fascinating that you kind of move into a different tier of things that you might go out for um mm -hmm. and that they have a perhaps a darker uh, a cloud around them uh and maybe also drawn to that or maybe also better able to inform that than you were before um, yeah interesting that it had an actual tangible uh, effect on your profession it was immediate it, th yeah. and that's all i've been doing for the most part there's like few exceptions but i i predominantly do audiobooks uh or i have been doing audiobooks more yeah as a voice actor and I was looking at my resume recently, like getting everything, you know, updating the website as you do. Yes. And I'm like, every single one of these women has been traumatized and they have a weapon. Like, oh. <laughs> like it's a sword or a gun, like across the board. Every single one of them is like, is there go they're going to get revenge. And I'm like, huh, all right, <laughs> typecast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, we must pay attention to the signals of the universe. <laughs>
<laughs> see, see what it's telling us. Uh, so it moves from like Rainbow Candy Kids Club to uh, Lost in the Woods or something. Yeah, I before yeah. I'd been doing a lot of kids apps and stuff. So, you know, like that stuff like one, two, three, four, like they... <laughs> that whole range yeah. there i was doing a lot of kids work and and e-learning programs with kids stuff and then my husband died and all of a sudden i'm like i'm going to hunt that can i cuss on this podcast uh, uh, sure oh. <laughs> i'll say I, I won't i'm gonna hunt that guy down and i'm gonna bring him to justice it was a lot of that kind of stuff and i'm like what a what a switch yeah although i think it would also be incredibly terrifying to use the other voice in that situation I'm going to hunt him down. <laughs> there, there it is. Yep. I do a bit like that on, on my TikTok. That's my main platform is TikTok. Uh -huh. And I have a bit with me saying really dark stuff yeah. in that preschool voice. Yes, that's nightmare fuel. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> See when that comes up, that's going to be a... <laughs> an audio book for the for the kiddies. Uh, <laughs> see, that's, that's I'm holding true. out to play the next creepy girl in a horror video game. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got my vote. <laughs> that's, yeah, uh, yeah, that's, um, yeah. Well, it's uh, just it's amazing what uh, things. What grief does to the body and to our to our physical forms and uh, the things we're emitting. Uh, <laughs> I was noticing that uh, coming back, uh, looking at Zoom calls and things that uh, uh, I was quite gray, uh, almost mm -hmm. Leland Palmer-like gray from Twin Peaks. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I embarrassingly dyed my, my beard. And now it's, you can't quite tell maybe in this format, but... I just have an old face with a young beard, and it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's sad. It's it, it was an attempt to make something sad less sad, and it's just sadder. <laughs> you can't <laughs> get away from the sad. No, they should put that on the Clairol box. That it's that. <laughs> but um, that also, uh, but we find humor in what we're doing is the point of everything we're talking about. Um, did you have to uh, then also plan a funny funeral for your husband? No, that was uh, unfortunately not what happened. I think he would have loved that, but um, he's a. Uh, Everybody he... says they love that, but when you're actually going through it, you can't. It's not funny. <laughs> no, I wanted to do it that way. Um, I was I was outvoted. He's. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen my big fat Greek wedding, but this was like my big fat Greek funeral. <laughs> oh, okay. And there was one of me and six hundred of them, so I was just uh, like, I don't have the the energy. <laughs> right. Right. You, yes. you guys, you guys do it. Go for it. Do do what you got to do. <laughs> in that endeavor, we are not alone in no. how we move through it. Yes. Uh, no. Yeah. So we, his friends and some of his friends and my, our, our friends, you know, we, we kind of do our, our own thing as far as like the, the memorials go. So it's, yeah. it's different. That's how we've been able to, you know, observe the way that we want to. And I, I, you know, was born and raised in San Diego. So for me, I grew up going to a place called Old Town, which is a historical, a historic neighborhood, yes. and um, partaking in Dia de los Muertos. So that's something that I I do. That's my ritual every year. Is is during that time I, you know, set up the ofrenda and everything. I go to Old Town, and that's how I I remember him. And I have those rituals, and a big part of that, you know, it, there's there's a little bit of like some you know, a solemn tone to it, of course, but there's, there's also a big part of that is making jokes and telling stories and, you know, like kind of riffing on the dead. And that's right. a lot more like that. The Dia de los Muertos is a lot more my speed. Yes. I lived in uh, California for 10 yeah. years and I, 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 I do miss that. And I'm glad that you reminded me of that because uh, while I did kind of do a half-assed altar, uh, <laughs> I think that would be good uh, to to uh, go down that path and celebrate that uh, on that day when it comes up, um, uh, because that would be helpful. I, I was able to get a little bit of humor in on the on the thing itself and uh, on the memorial box. They could get something inscribed on there, so I was able to put what he always joked about, saying, "Here lies uh, Jim, a man of few words, now with even less to say." Uh, <laughs> So we got that on the box, and uh, no one will see it after that memorial service because 
I guess we paid not only for the box, but then for that box to be inside another box, um, which will then be lowered into the ground. Again, it's all ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. I I I can't stand that stuff. The amount of money. My husband would have been so upset the amount of money that was spent on his funeral. He wanted, he was like, just throw me in the – he's like, just like throw me to be decomposed somewhere that it's like not going to be harmful. He would, he would have been just so upset at the amount of money that was spent. Yeah. I say mushroom suit. Let yeah. me get it to become one with the mycelium and just uh, be helpful. <laughs> Right. You know, toss me off the coast and let me enjoy the fog rolling over San Francisco, something Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, Couldn't agree more. (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) But, uh, well, this has been really wonderful to talk to you. Um, And uh, I just wonder, do do you feel uh, George's presence in what you're doing? Yes, in the sense of like, how I was talking about earlier, like I feel like he is like a part a part of me. Like I feel like there is this wrapped up entity of both of us that I am carrying. Um, I, we're both my husband and I are pretty stone cold atheists, so I don't feel like you know like his actual literal spirit presence kind of a thing. I don't think he's watching over me somewhere. Uh, you know my the, my long shot hope bet is that there's like some kind of multiverse time is not in the way we perceive it so you know everything that has happened and will happen and is happening is all happening simultaneously so maybe there's like something there but that that's you know that's kind of where i'm at so for me like feeling his presence in what i'm doing is very much just having been so close with my husband having known him so well we spent almost every moment together we worked together and we we loved it we were the best of friends so knowing him so well and being able to infuse that into my work that makes me feel like he's still here because i knew him well enough and i'm creating these these things i i make jokes where i'm like oh that that was so george that was something he would have said that's that's how i feel his presence if that makes sense Absolutely. And it, it's, it kind of jibes with something I've been uh, feeling too, which is uh, when my mother died, I felt a real sense of ghostly presence or things moving and all that uh, still here around and somewhere looking. And I was concerned that I wasn't feeling that with my dad uh, going on. Um, but then I was aware that the way I was acting was actually very similar to the way that he would have acted. And in that way, he's so present as to be one with me that I can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm looking externally, but in fact, it's internal in how I'm moving forward. And mm-hmm. uh, that brought me a great deal of calm. <laughs> and peace. You get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that atheists are no to the ghosts. I, I mean... Just you, maybe. Maybe, maybe just us. Like, I mean, you know, know. like atheism being like there's just nothing. There's no soul. There's no anything mystical like that. It's all electrical signals in your brain. Like, I I guess I guess stone cold atheist is the way that I would put it. I don't believe anything is real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that denomination. (laughs) Yes. I see. I see. Um, <laughs> well, uh, certainly what is real is the work that you're doing, connecting people and creating a network and continuing to, to move forward in a way that uh, offers some healing and uh, uh, possibility for togetherness with others, which I think is immensely, as I said, helpful and important. Um, the, you're doing some support groups too, right? You mentioned that this, they can be via Zoom or they're in person. Yeah, they're they're all virtual because they are really focused on people who feel underrepresented. So, you know, there's there's a lot of support groups out in the world. It's tougher sometimes to find people like you if you're one of those like weird grievers, as I say. So, you know, dark humor or young widow or just the loss of your partner. There are a lot of groups that, for example, like they consider widow somebody who was like legally married. They will not let somebody go to the support group who was not legally married, um, you know, and 
those are usually unique challenges too for those folks. You don't get a lot of like the survivor benefits if there are any to be had if you were unmarried. Um, so there's there's a lot of folks who will fall into very particular grief style groups and it can be hard to find that support. And that's what I work to do is match people. So my my website, deathishilarious.com has a place where you can go and you can be like, I'm looking for people like me this is what I'm looking for. And I help match those people. Terrific. And, and they can also tune into the podcast via that site. That's what it's called, right? Death is hilarious. Yes. Death is hilarious. The pod, the podcast on that site is uh, also um, available and we're, we're gearing up for the next season here. Always an exciting moment. Always. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, it's very inspiring what you're doing. And thank you for that. Um, Tony, this has been very uh, lovely to have a chance to talk with you. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was so nice to, to meet you and chat with you. All right. We'll talk again soon. Bye. Bye. There we go. It's heavy, but humor helps us with the lift. The thing I'm interested in, whatever it is, whether it's humor or music or writing, is the what do we do now, what do I do now of it all. Now, I keep asking people how they were transformed by loss because I want some insight, some wisdom in how I might function on the other side of this event. Of course, the truth is, it's unknowable at this point, and I'm still not far enough away from it because the grief part for being associated with something so final and specific is anything but. Its movement is so slow as to be almost imperceptible. It grinds and wears like a glacier in retreat. We might not even recognize that anything has changed till a great deal of time has passed and we look around and think, I live in a smooth valley? How did this smooth valley get here? That will do it for us this week. Tawny's podcast is Death is Hilarious and the nonprofit she started is the Death is Hilarious Foundation. Look it up. If you need a support group, there may be something there for you. Maybe just a good laugh. That can also be helpful. A good thing to bookmark should something come up in the future. And look, not all birds in the home mean death, but just remain alert and attuned. The universe is sending us signals all the time. Be receptive and remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, written, and performed by James Bewley. Season 14 artwork by M.K. Cummins. Season 14 theme features lyrics and vocals by Kylie Lotz, music by Austin Lotz, and mixing by Zach Robbins. It's never too late to give Dale a positive review while hitting subscribe on Apple Podcasts. But you can also tune in to Dale's Frequency on Stitcher, Podchaser, SoundCloud, and Spotify, wherever you are. Dale's right there with you. To get in touch with mindfulness tips, positive reinforcement, or just to say hello, email Dale directly at daleradio at gmail.com. Be sure to follow him on Instagram by looking up at Dale Seaver. From our being to yours, thank you for visiting the Deep Night. <laughs>